welcome back to Sports Performance Radio. This is B. Chavez. I am your host. And as I said, welcome back. I'm glad all of you could join me. This is the December 2015 episode. Uh, episode numerically, episode number three, zero zero three, and uh, I typically don't mention that what it, what episode number and where chronologically a show fits, but I want to with this one because some of what I'm going to talk about here, the intro is uh, things that are to come, 2016s, uh, some some changes, some hopefully additions and improvements. Um, one of those specifically is. The show will, in fact, become available in podcast, true audio-only podcast format. Uh, I've been very happy with the YouTube approach, the kind of multimedia picture, audio, uh, background video scenario that I have on YouTube. Uh, I'm very happy with that. That kind of was my vision for this show from the beginning. But uh, I have gotten many requests, uh, well, many for a show of this size, many requests for a true podcast-type format that people can listen to while driving, while working, while whatever. That They just simply don't need the multimedia immersion. They just want audio. And some of them, some people even only have the ability for audio, uh, something that I kind of have to say I didn't really consider when putting this together. So the show will, in fact, be available on the uh, posting site Podbean. It will be teameviljsp.podbean.com. And I will, of course, include that as the sh- as it gets up and running. But uh, the site is sequestered, paid for, and the shows are being loaded as we speak. So it is definitely something that's going to be available for the 2016 season. Uh, another thing that is going to ch- well change or add on and improve is uh, I'm going to be doing some kind of non-SPR shows, some kind of, uh, haven't figured out what I'm going to call them. I don't know if they're going to be the sports performance radio supplementals or coverage shows or haven't really narrowed down what they're going to be, but uh, a number of friends, colleagues, and uh, just general acquaintances are thick in their competitive season uh, as we speak, literally, as I am recording this on Thanksgiving Day. Um Good friend of ours and very first guest of Sports Performance Radio, Patrick uh, Castelli, is in Europe. He's in Sweden competing at 90-kilogram World's Strongest Man. He's over there with the 90 and uh, 105-kilogram World's Strongest Man. And uh, he has agreed to kind of take some notes and some background information and come back and give us kind of a bird's-eye report on how that went, uh, placings, the general macabre of the show, and the landscape of uh, lightweight strongman. So... That's going to be kind of not fall under the heading of sports performance radio. It's not a science show. It's not for the geeks. It's kind of uh, current events, but it's also uh, in our world. It's in our strength world, and it's going to be interesting. And um, I hope to bring a number of these shows through the, the coming year. So that'll be a change and improvement. And uh, as with everything with me and with the show, it will be evolving. It will uh, kind of happen as it happens. So I'm excited. Uh, I hope you all come along with me on the journey, and uh, I hope you give me your feedback so I can get it right. So, on to kind of today's show. A um, couple, two quick little news stories I want to cover. One, um, just kind of something that I said in the beginning I wouldn't do, but this one I want to do because it's important. Uh, it's kind of a little feel-good piece, and that is the World Raw Bench Press record has been elevated. Um, I'm embarrassed to say the person who did it, it was completely foreign, no pun intended, completely foreign or unknown to me. And I hope I'm not butchering the man's name too badly, but Sraichev Kirill, 
uh, Russian. Uh, he, on November 22nd, 2015, uh, benched consecutively uh, 310, 330, and a world record of 335 kilograms, which comes to 738 pounds for all of you in the United States. The rest of the world is pretty comfortable with kilograms, but 335 or 738. I'm usually a little skeptical about things of this nature, but I watched the video and... Boys and girls, ladies and gentlemen, I got to tell you, it's possibly the textbook example of a perfect bench press, uh, a measure of control. Um, actually, I kind of chuckled to myself when, uh, when I watched the video. The person that came out to hand off the lift didn't look like they were capable of budging 700 pounds, and yet Barr just slid right out of the rack, uh, took position, which means that uh, Mr. Sarajev Kirill is ridiculously strong. Bar descended. Um, not only was it a pause, but there was no sink into his chest. The bar literally hovered at t-shirt level and just ascended to a perfect lockout. It was the ideal bench press. So pretty amazing stuff. Um, like I said, I typically don't cover kind of that sort of thing, but um, I'm a huge raw lifter, huge raw lifting fan. And uh, I think it's worth mentioning that, uh, you know, that we now have people benching roll what could once only be done in shirts. So it's pretty exciting stuff. Um, another news story um, could be a fizzle, could actually be big news. I don't know how it's going to turn out, but um, I'm going to read you the headline from the AP Newswire. Uh, word for word, I'm going to leave out some bits, but uh, what, what I read is direct quote from the AP Newswire, and it says, Monday, by the World Anti-Doping Agency, across a 323 pages, it implicates athletes, coaches, trainers, doctors, and various Russian institutions laying out what is likely the most extensive state-sponsored drug program since the notorious East German regime. Uh, quote, it is worse than we thought, end quote. Dick Pound, founding president of the World Anti-Doping Association and author of the report. So that's kind of interesting. Um, certainly to anyone with a brain, it's not news. Every international athlete out there is doping. Uh, it's just it's just the way it is, folks. Um, being able to implicate actual institutions and agencies is kind of big news, but yet it kind of isn't. Um, pretty much the world at large has known that countries with a social and, and political structure like Russia have been doing that on a state-sponsored level since they've been there. Um, it's, it's, it's really not news, but uh, from a socio-political and economic level, it might be important. And the reason I mention that is this next quote, and it says, Russian ref officials responded with defiance, disputing the investigation's findings, quote, whatever we do, everything is bad. Vitaly Mutko, the Russian sports minister, told his news agency Interfax, if the whole system needs to be shut down, we will shut it down gladly. We will stop paying fees, stop funding Russian anti-doping agencies, the Moscow Anti-Doping Laboratory. We will stop paying fees and save the money. That is interesting. I don't know if Russia really has the constitution do that and just kind of be ostracized from international sports, but uh, it would be interesting and it would be a staggering financial blow to the knuckleheads at WADA. And uh, I'm curious to see who backed it, who backs down first. 
that uh, really, to me, is the news story. Is kind of a an international monetary game of chicken between the drug users and the drug testers. Um, that will be very interesting to see how it plays out, and I hope to keep you posted on that. And uh, I hate to be a dick, but I kind of hope the Russians stick to their guns and, and play that out, because what is just a hypocritical, politically just destructive thing. Um, I, I, I kind of would love to see them actually get their panties pinched up, but um, I'm suspicious. But it'll be interesting. It really will. And, uh, you know, my opinion aside, it is news. So, all of that aside, um, on to today's guest, to December 2015's guest. Uh, I'm crazy about this show. I just got done editing it, and I have to tell you, it's by far and away the best thing that I've ever been involved in. It's amazing. Um, it's awesome that the last show of the year will be the best, and hopefully it sets the footing for the new year. The guest you are about to hear is Lyle McDonald. Lyle is the diet guru. We're talking about a guy that goes back two decades or more, uh, had his roots with uh, interacting with Dan Duchesne. Um, this guy is, is everything. Um, anything you need to know about diet is about to be covered in the next hour and 15 minutes. Um, Lyle himself, you can find at bodyarecomposition.com. I'll put that link in the description below, but it's one word, bodyrecomposition.com. He's an author, number of very famous books, um, A Guide to Flexible Dieting, The Ultimate Diet 2, Rapid Fat Loss Handbook. Um, I know some of these, if you don't know them specifically, they sound kind of trendy and cool. They're not. These are thick, science-rich, real-world, applicable books. This is great stuff. Uh, another book, um, one that is my kind of my favorite and kind of my go-to tome on the subject, that is The Protein Book. Uh, great, great piece. If you own anything of Lyle's, it should be that, in my opinion. So, um, what's about to follow is Lyle just giving an hour and 15 minute dissertation, essentially, on the science of body weight manipulation, body fat loss, what you're doing wrong, what you're doing right, what you could do better. Um, literally every book you own on dieting, you could probably throw away and just follow the next hour and 15 minutes as your guidelines for all future body weight concerns. Uh, it's an excellent, excellent video, and I can't thank uh, Lyle enough. So enough out of me. The next thing you will hear is Lyle telling you everything you need to know about body fat loss. All right, let's get to it. All right, everybody, as promised, we are on the phone with one of the good guys. I am so excited for this. We are here live with Lyle McDonald. Lyle, how you doing, my friend? I'm very well, B. How are you? Good, good. I am excited. As I told you, I'll say it here again in the public forum, I am literally a fan. It's rare that I get to interview somebody that I am a fan of, uh, and I am. I've followed your work for Oh, two decades, perhaps, and uh, I'm just really excited and really gratified that you would uh, take the time to speak with me and my listeners. So, absolutely, uh, I'm just I'm really excited. So, you are going to talk to us about all things uh, body weight manipulation and body fat loss. Yes. Yeah, I kind of wanted to talk about. Um, you know, we we sort of talked in the when we were off off recording about. Just sort of dieting in general, but especially dying, dieting to more of the extreme. You know, I've, I've, years ago, it sort of 
or identified or dawned on me. We've kind of got these three separate categories of dieters, and they tend to have very specifically different issues. You know, it's a very extreme, you know, typical overweight, obese person. There are physiological problems there, but it tends to be more behavioral. Like, it's just, it's a lot of bad habits. It's a lot of years of poor eating, and, you know, there are some dysfunctional systems in the brain and reward systems, but usually there it's just a matter of finding some behavior changes and getting them started. In the middle, and here I would say, you know, for men, that's maybe 15 to 25% body fat. For women, 24 to 30%. That's kind of a, a happy medium. There's not really a lot of issues. Like, yes, dieting sucks, and it will always suck, but you don't really run into any major problems. And by problems, I mean stubborn fat issues, really severe muscle loss, metabolic slowdown. Like, it's starting there, but it hasn't really gotten in your way. Really, and then there's the third group, and this is the group that's, you know, below 15% for men. Some would use 12% or whatever. For women, low 20s, trying to push down further. You know, you've got the guys that they want the six-pack. You've got women that want to, you know, lean hips and thighs. For men, that's pushing into really single digits, even if guys don't want to, to, to accept that. For women, you're looking at the middle teens. That's really when you run into a lot of problems. Body's fighting back hard, metabolic rate, uh, hormones are doing some very bad things. Uh, for women, that can result in loss of the menstrual cycle. Men can get erectile dysfunction, you know, sex drive starts to, to drop. Uh, something I like to joke about is, you know, we spend all this time and energy getting a perfect body as a guy and then your dick won't work. Um, so it's, you know, it's a little irony of life. Um, and then, of course, at the very extreme of that, you've got contest dieting for physique sports, bodybuilding, the new men's fitness. You've got female bodybuilding, such as it is, female physique and fitness. And by there, you're looking at men, you know, 4 to 5% body fat, women 10 to 12%. <clears throat> Pushing down is really just a – it's almost an exponential version of, of before. You know, a lot of guys with some, some effort – uh, some discipline, they can get to 8%. It's hard. It takes a while. <clears throat> but getting from 8 to 4, that's a whole other story. Um, same thing for women. Middle teens, 15, 16, 17, it's not easy, but it's doable. That last push to get, you know, really the last little bits of body fat off at, at that extreme, um, you know, you mentioned you uh, were competitive bodybuilders, so, you know, you know, the, you know the drill. It just gets exponentially harder for exponentially less results. What I really wanted to kind of focus on was that that third group, that, that leaner group that's sort of trying to get either fairly lean or, or even at the extremes. And some of the problems they either typically run into are really more of the mistakes that they make um, because what happened over the years as bodybuilding became very pharmaceutically uh, assisted <clears throat> was that a lot of mistakes got covered up. A lot of the problems that naturals face simply you don't have to deal with, with your own, when you're on drugs, which is why they, they're so fantastic. Um, and a lot of the dieting practices and especially training practices that came out of drug-using bodybuilders really don't work. Like, they really fail to produce um, when naturals try to follow them. And you just – so that's kind of really what, what my focus – what I wanted to talk about was those issues naturals have to deal with. And kind of as much what they should do as what they shouldn't do, since I see the same errors kind of cropping up. And, and a lot of those things would have some crossover content even into drug-using athletes. Um, oh, sure. I, I would um, think, yes. 
you know, I, I think, you know, you, you run into an issue, you know, I'm, I'm not really, I don't work with, with pharmaceutically enhanced people, um, but I, coaches I know that do, better training and dieting is always superior to worse training. And, like, the fact that drugs will cover up for bad habits or bad dieting and training practices doesn't mean that better training and diet practices don't still work more effectively. So there certainly is some crossover. It's just when you've got, when you can add throwing drugs into the equation, you can certainly get away with a lot more. Fair enough, and very interesting. And I'm going to, I'm really, and I hope my listeners as well are going to be very interested to hear this because I, I think we have a blend of people listening to the show. Okay. Um, I think probably because of me and the macabre that I bring, um, it probably leans toward the extreme of the extreme, both uh, yes. real science files and even per, you know, performance files, which sure. are probably relate to drug use, uh, at, at least to some degree, but um, I'm, I'm very interested to hear what you have to say, and uh, especially as it relates to women, because that's a hot topic yeah. and, and truly a, a difficult topic. So uh, yeah. b- b- by all means, launch into it, but dazzle me. I, I want right. to know. And just, you know, a little bit more introduction. I will, you know, I usually, I'm, I'm a big science guy and big into the deep, deep physiology, and I'll, I'll try to stay away from too much of that other than more as, you know, some explanatory background for some of the comments I'm going to make. But as far as pharmaceutical stuff, what you find is that what bodybuilders figured out over the years through trial and error or getting into the research or whatever, was sort of ways to fix this stuff. Like, like they basically ended up plugging all the holes and all the problems that, that they were running into. So, like, the same pathways that tend to be limiting and problematic for naturals, there's usually a drug solution for it. And if you look, I think, at, at the drug regimens of most hard-dieting bodybuilders for contests, you'll find that they're probably taking something to address every single one of them, which is part of why they have the success that they do and part of why naturals frequently don't. So, anyway, without, without that out of the background, probably I think the first error that people tend to make is underestimating their dieting time. And this is actually true across all categories. You know, we've got this old, very simple, and frankly wrong math that says one pound is 3,500 calories. Ergo, if I reduce my food by 500 or increase my exercise by 500 calories a day, I will lose one pound a week. It's been repeated for decades, and it's completely wrong (laughs) for a number of reasons. The first of which being that that, that value only counts holds for a pound of pure fat, right? Fats, triglyceride, one pound of adipose tissue is about 450 grams of fat, about 90% fat, about 3,600 calories. Like, that's where that number comes from. Now, if you're losing 100% fat, that number holds, that 3,500 calorie value holds. But it's very rare to lose 100%. Of, of fat when you're dieting. It can be done if you do certain things correctly, and I'll talk about some of those later. But what ends up happening is the effective deficit for that one pound of fat is actually generally higher than the 3,500 weekly deficit, right? So it may end up being 10 or 15% more. You might actually have to create a total deficit of like 4,500 calories because some of those calories are not coming from fat tissue. So that's the first place that number falls apart, right? It's very, you just don't see that one pound of fat per week with that really simple math. There's a couple of other reasons, uh, not the least of which being that, right, we've got our total daily energy expenditure, how many calories we burn in a day, resting metabolic rate, the thermic effect of food, how many calories we burn when we eat, thermic effect of exercise, and then there's this new one called non-exercise activity thermogenesis. It's the calories we burn just kind of moving around 
It's anything that's not exercise. So let's say you're cost of calories. life. Yeah, that's that. Yeah, in my yeah. vernacular, I just call that the cost of life. Yeah, basically. So, and, and unfortunately, in the modern world, most of us have a very low requirement for need, right? Most of us sit in front of a computer all day. It's not like right. you get up and move around. You know, if you're a day laborer, sure, you burn a lot of calories. Most of us have a very low need. And it actually turns out that need can vary between two people by 2,000 calories a day, which is ridiculous. Like, that is such an insane range. Um, when you consider, you know, total daily energy expenditures. But in any case, let's say your total, we add all those up, and you're burning, you need 3,000 calories a day to maintain. Fantastic. So time for simple diet logic. I'm going to reduce my food intake by 500 calories a day. Across seven days, 3,500 calories, the magic one pound a week. The problem is that that, that number, that 3,000 calories, changes. And this is where people really go wrong when they criticize the energy balance equation. There's all kinds of dum-dums saying, oh, the energy balance equation is false and the math never works. It's because they're treating it as a static number rather than a dynamic system, right? As soon as you reduce your calories by 500 calories a day, right, the thermic effect of food, which is about 10% of that, that goes down automatically. So within one day, you're, you've reduced your thermic effect of food by 50 calories. Guess what? You're, Magic 500-calorie-a-day deficit just became 450. Right there, the math fails from the imme- – I mean, immediately the math fails. You added activity, that wouldn't necessarily be the case. But the other components change, too, right? When the people diet, what do they do? They're tired. They move around less. Meat goes down. That huge non-exercise activity thermogenesis component can frequently go down a lot. You do a hard, hard-ass workout, and five or six hours later, you don't move around as much. So the body is really phenomenal at compensating. And what, what the upshot of all of this is, is that people vastly underestimate how long they need to diet to reach their goals because they do that simple math based on 500 calories or whatever it is, they crank it out, they go, oh, one pound a week, I need to lose 10 pounds, cool, 10 weeks of dieting. Yeah, it never works. It never works. Now, it does work if you take thermogenic compounds to keep your metabolic rate up and you take growth hormone or clen or whatever to make sure that you're burning 100% fat. Those conditions, you can probably keep those numbers right spot on. But for everybody else, it doesn't happen. So you get guys that you know, they, they map it out. They're like, yep, I gotta lose 10 pounds to get from 12 to 8 percent or whatever, or even worse for contest dieting. And they start too late. You know, you hear these stories about, uh, professional bodybuilders that they do a 12 week contest cycle, diet cycle. What you don't see are the drugs that are getting them two pounds a week of true fat loss with anabolics to prevent muscle loss, anti-cortisol drugs to prevent, you know, all the problems are plugged with drugs. Naturals need to basically figure what their estimated dieting time is and then add 50 to 100% to that. So if you've predicted that you need 12, if you've predicted that you need 12 weeks to get into shape, you better start at 18 to 24 weeks out. And yes, that is six months of dieting. That is not a joke. Um, got a good buddy who coaches a lot of natural body, and seriously, he starts contest diets six months out from a show. Um, small women may need more, but like that's that's truly realistically how long it's going to take, even if the math says it should take half of that. So you've got that. That's one big issue, which is often coupled with the fact that people think they're a lot leaner than they are. Um, 
if you ever get bored, go online onto some of the forums, and you'll have people that are visibly very fat going out, getting told that they're 15 to 17% if they're a woman, right? At 17% body fat for a woman, you will pretty much have a full six-pack and shredded belt. And these girls are nowhere close, but everyone on the forum is like, oh, yeah, you're only 15%. They figure it should take nothing to get to 10% for contest shape. Same thing for men. They think they're 15% and they want to get to 8%, but they're really 18 to 20%, and they're not going to make it. Like, they're not – realistically, they're not getting into contest shape in any in any reasonable amount of time. Um, and, and part of that is problems with the measurement methods and the techniques, but you, you get a lot of people that, you know, put pictures up online, and I've got this on my forums for rough body fat estimations, and the numbers they're given are just, people are delusional. Like, the, you guy, guy at 18 is told he's 12, and people just start too fat, and then they underestimate their dieting time, and 12 weeks later, they're nowhere close to where they want to be. And if they're shooting for contest lean, you know, they're the guy that shows up at the contest, and you see him on stage and go, huh, I think he forgot to diet. Like, there's always one dude at every natural show that seems to have forgotten to train and diet. It's really weird. Um, so that that's really, you know, honestly, that would probably fix most of the problems. People start too late. They start too fat. They get bored. They get impatient, and they start doing dumb things. And dumb things are kind of the next topics I want to talk about. If Right there's a perfect spot to just interject some uh, some some radio talk. Um I, I agree with everything you said, and something that I try to do as the host of the show is kind of point out continuity. And uh, mm-hmm. in our very first show, my prototype episode show, we uh, interviewed uh, world champion strongman you know, Patrick Castelli. And the one thing he consistently hammered you know, and really pointed out over and over that it's why he's better than everyone else is because he very realistically measures his performance – Against reality and against you know statistical numbers, he, right. he you, you know, consistently benchmarks himself against reality, not perception, yeah. not his buddies, yeah. not you know against reality. Whenever possible, take a true third-party scientific measurement of things and yeah. use that as your bedrock for decision making. And it's really the same thing you're saying, and I, I really like to point out the continuity of successful people and intelligent people seem to have the very same methodology, and, and right. I think that's relevant. And I think that the listening public really needs to absorb that, even when it chaps your ass a little bit, because it sure. will. Because well, it that, will. And that's the, yeah, and that's the thing. I mean, you know, I'm, I don't want to say that people who get into bodybuilding have any sort of certain – issues or insecurities, but you, you, I mean, you see that in all sports. You see people that surround themselves only with the folks that tell them exactly what they want to hear, and that's why you get that one dude at every show. Who, he's probably the biggest dude in his gym, but he shows up at the contest, and you're just like, did you, I mean, I just always get wonder. It's like, it's not like running. It's The magazines exist. You can look at pictures and then look in the mirror and go, huh. That's not really what I look like. And yet, you know, all of his buddies are telling him, ah, you look great, and you're mean, and then you're just holding water, and it's the lighting. And then, of course, when they lose, it's all politics. And it's like if you need to be able to handle that criticism and, and like you said, you know, look at very factual uh, measures, not just your buddy going, ah, oh, yeah, you're looking good. You know, it's, you, you mentioned being a power lifter. 
what's the worst thing anybody can ask in a commercial gym? Hey, brother, I hit Oh, man, I don't, I don't want to ruin this guy's day and tell him that he is six inches above parallel, but if he's going to actually try to go to a competition, he really needs – but his buddies are like, oh, yeah, you're past the grass. Like, <laughs> yeah, um, you better pick a federation that passes high squats. So, yeah, there there is – definitely uh, a need for that reality check. And, and it's tough with body fat because the methods aren't fantastic, but get regular calipers, get a DEXA scan. If you can afford it, that's probably going to be the most accurate. You can sort of correlate those. Try to find someone with experience who can really visually, you know, give, give you – I mean, I've had people online that put up a picture and I tell them my opinion. No way, man. There's no way I'm that fat. It's the lighting. I go, well, you're in dark lighting, which should make you look leaner, and I got bad news for you. You're fat. So you need to accept that. I mean, this is certainly your interview, and and I agree with you on the DEXA scan, but I know a lot of people don't have access. There are, you know. But I've had very good luck with a simple generic pair of calipers and and John Perillo's body fat formula. I've really had really good luck with that. Yeah, as long as you've got someone, you know, to consistently measure that knows what they're doing, and even that's a problem. You get people, you know, you go into a commercial gym, you get the generic trainer to measure you, and they'll caliper people at 9% that you're like, um, no, and mainly because they won't go deep enough. Um, Most people don't like to grab enough fat when they do the measurements, and my rule of thumb is that if you're calipering someone and they don't yelp from pain at least once, you're not pulling hard enough. Um, speaking of speaking of Dan Duchesne, uh, a buddy of his, John Romano, gave yeah. I think the very best uh, advice on the subject of monitoring one's own body fat. He said, "You don't have to know anything about anything." He said, "Get a hold of your belly, pinch <laughs> the calipers, and measure it. It's going to be a number. Yeah, be whatever, twenty-seven, twenty-two, nine, whatever. It's a number." He said, "Diet for a number of weeks. Do it again. If that pinch isn't smaller, you suck at dieting." Yeah, and that's that's actually really phenomenal advice. You know, men should really stick with a, an abdominal type skin fold because that's where their problems are going to be. Women, hips and thighs, you know, thighs tend to be really slow to move. But yeah, find that one. There's usually one really good indicator skin fold. And yeah, that's that's the the John's advice is not is not bad by any stretch of the imagination. Just um, measure the trend. If it's getting sure. smaller, you're losing fat. If it's getting bigger, you, yeah. you're getting fatter. But by by yeah, stop interrupting, please continue. Yeah. Absolutely. So that that's kind of like, you know, I said number one is be realistic about where you're at and be very realistic about how long it's really gonna take you because like I said, what happens is people get impatient if they're on a time you know, if they've got a date to get in shape by when they realize they're behind, they start to do dumb things, which is they tend to really cut their calories too hard or drastically up their activity or both, which is an awful, awful combination. I'll come back to it in a second. But, but really that's, that's kind of the main, you know, the main one. Um, another one is to just, is actually to be very realistic about, you know, the effort it's going to take. It's lovely for, you know, guys to like, ah, I want a six pack. For a man, the abs and last area to lean out. <clears throat> You'll have, you know, a skinny face, a ripped upper body. Most men don't carry fat on their legs, and abs just take a while. And to to have a visible six pack for most men, you're looking at eight percent body fat. Um, certainly, single digits. Some guys will get it at ten, but you're not getting it much higher than that. And that's not easy. That takes a lot more discipline than the typical 
kid, you know, height, whatever, mid-20s guy wants to do. They want to go out and drink and party, and, and there's only so much you can get away with. It takes a lot of discipline to get there unless you've got super good genetics. And same thing for women. To get to 15%, which is going to be very lean upper body, full six-pack, leanish legs, takes a lot of work. And people tend to really, I think, fail to realize just how much effort they're going to have to put into with the kind of consistency, discipline with their diet, discipline with their training. Um, there's also the issue, if you're going to do a contest, and I don't know how many of your listeners, you know, I really recommend people seriously consider why they're doing it. Like, yes, it will test you. Yes, you will learn a lot about who you are as a human being. However, for the rest of your life, your brain will be fucked up. Because once you've been 5% as a dude or 10% as a woman, any normal body fat will feel fat. Once you've been contest lean at 8% as a male, you feel fat as hell. For a woman who's been 10%, you know, the limits of lower body fat, at 15 to 16%, she will feel fat. It really changes your perspective and not in a good way. As a, another, the same coach friend of mine said, if you don't have an eating disorder starting your contest diet, you'll probably have one coming out. And I don't think that's a facetious statement to make. Um, it's not, it's not in the slightest. There's, there's endless, endless uh, issues that women's bodybuilding and, and women's physique sports generate in that. And that's the least of them, in my opinion. But, yes, oh, sure. you're absolutely correct. And I think frequently, you know, there's there's often a subclinical eating disorder there in, in the first place because it, it sort of – you see that a lot in women's sports. Um but you sort of start with a subclinical eating disorder, but by the time you get to the end, after you've had the endless binges and you're starving to death physically, mentally, physiologically, you know, you hear the horror stories of the 20 to 40 pound balloon ups, and then that just throws women into this binge purge cycle, little like I'm gaining 10 pounds and I gotta starve myself and do hours of cardio and, their water weight already is freaky, annoying, crazy, and oh yeah, it really does mess with people hard. So it's you know it's it's not a choice to be made uh, casually. Um, people, you know, it's it's exhausting effort. It will mess you up for months afterwards, and you may never be the same mentally um, when you're done. But anyways, that's kind of number two is to realize just how much effort it may take, you know, which is not to say not, not to shoot for that goal, even at the moderate level, you know. Eight to 10% for a male is sustainable, although it takes some work. You know, 15 to 16% is sustainable for a woman. It takes some work. These guys that, and maybe this is point three, you have this really dumb idea, uh, and again, drug users can sometimes do it. People are like, yeah, I want to stay contest lean year-round. No, <laughs> just just no. You're not going to stay 5% body fat as a male year-round. Well, not if you want your dick to work. Um, same thing, a woman is not holding 10 to 12% without really doing a lot of physiological damage. At that point, she'll pretty much have lost her menstrual cycle. She's losing bone density. I mean, there's a lot of real major yeah, problems. Losing there. hair. Yeah, yeah. I mean, oh my, yeah. The the stuff that happens at that level, just due to the the stress and the effort involved, and it it really, you know, you hear about. <laughs> I knew one person who, you know, she was like, yeah, my liver enzymes are up at 900 because she feels the need to do four hours of aerobics a day, and live on lean protein and broccoli to to stay in shape. And it's like fantastic. So to to look, you know, fantastic. Make no mistake, your eating disorder is causing your body to eat itself. So. Good job. Um, so, yeah, this idea that you can even 
you know, maintain the super extremes of lean. It's like, again, you can stay lean-ish with hard training and, and watching your diet, um, but this idea that you're going to stay contest lean year-round, which is the other part of, you know, it goes back to point two. People spend all this time and energy getting, you know, to be physical zenith for that one day, and then it starts to disappear almost by the day. They start getting fat almost immediately when their calories come up, and they, they try to stay on, you know, keep dieting and keep their calories down or bring them up super slowly, and it's like, look, this is the reality. You know, as a male, you may be able to stabilize at 8 9 10% and be fine. A woman... You need to come back up to 14, 15, 16 until your cycle comes back online, but you're just not staying leaner than that year-round. But this is a place where drugs can fix it all because all of the problems that happen, you know, if you look at males at that extreme low body fat, you will see thyroid metabolism, T3, in the toilet. Testosterone may reach castrate levels. No joke, castrate levels, as in you cut off your testicles. Cortisol through the roof. Things like IGF binding protein, I mean, you are in just a severely catabolic state. Well, then your hunger is just off the map. Like, people are just, like, they, you know that you're in the depths of a contest diet when you would rather eat a sandwich than have sex. And that's what happens. This is a situation, there's a just random biological trivia. There's a brain chemical called neuropeptide Y that sort of makes you pay attention to, uh, to food. And they did this really funny study where they injected rats with NPY, and they gave them access to either sugar water or a receptive, sexually receptive female, and the rats chose the sugar water. Now, my question, because this is the way I think, why didn't the rat put the sugar water on her back and get in there? But that's just me. Um, the point being that at some point you forget about all other aspects of life other than food. You obsess about it. You think about it endlessly. You can always tell on Facebook if someone is contest dieting. All they're putting up is pictures of food. It's food porn. They are just trying to satisfy their obsession. And I call that stage when NPY makes you its bitch. Um, I, I'd, lo- I'd love to interject. I really uh, desperately want to keep my, my, uh, my, my inter- intervention in your, in your talk to a minimum. Mm-hmm. But um, I, by pedigree, I'm a biologist. Yeah. And um, one of the major concepts, one of the major tenets of biology is – both on the org- organism level and on the, uh, the the collective level, is the concept of feedback loops. And everything right. you're describing is both a feedback loop and something that I don't think people take into account. It's normal and natural. It's what is was is what's supposed to happen. In an oh organism. yeah, absolutely. Your body absolutely. does not want this crap going on, and it's implementing the necessary steps to right the ship. You are, oh, yeah. by, by definition, doing something very unnatural. Even if you're not treating it with pharmacology, the very act of forcing yourself to be that lean is, in fact, not natural. Correct, yeah. Um, and, and if you do, and if you look at all of the adaptations in terms of metabolic slowdown, loss of sexual function and interest, uh, leptin goes down, thyroid goes down, cortisol goes up, your sleep patterns get messed up. You know, we know that, that sleeping, not sleeping enough makes you move around less. The reduction in non-exercise activity thermogenesis, you burn less calories during exercise. This is your body trying to keep you alive. It is one big energy conservation state, and that's why dieting gets progressively harder. As everything slows down, you end up having to push even further to keep that deficit, to keep that fat loss going. Your body is not only trying to keep you from losing more fat, but it's making you hungry it's actually making you more attentive to food cues and in our modern environment. That's a bitch. 
You know, there's a reason bodybuilders are antisocial shut-ins. If you leave the house, you are bombarded by nothing but things telling you to eat. And in the middle of a contest diet, it just it's murderous. But then again, if you look at what contest bodybuilders have typically done, okay, they're taking anabolic steroids. That offsets the low testosterone. They're usually they play around with cortisol blockers. Didn't work so well. We're not getting into that. They are taking thyroid medication. Maintains thyroid hormones. They are taking ephedrine or usually clenbuterol. Clenbuterol maintains the drop in nervous system function. They use appetite suppressants. You know, they're basically all of these. I won't call them defects. All to your point, you know, all of these very natural adaptations. They are plugging the holes. Like, they have found a way to just fix every single one of them on one level or another, which lets them get away with what they get away with. You'll hear about pros that do stay 4 or 5% year ever claim to. Like I said, steroids, cortisol blockers, thyroid, clen, appetite suppressants, GH, you know, Lord knows what else is going on in there. And it's it's giving them effectively a normal physiology in a very abnormal state, in a very dangerous physiological state. Um, but, again, it makes sense for your body to turn all that stuff off. Women lose their menstrual cycle. If you're starving to death and dieting is essentially starvation, the last thing you need to do is get pregnant. So that system just shuts the hell off. And as much as many women love that, love losing their period, or as they like to talk about banishing the estrogen, yeah, you're causing permanent bone density loss that you may never get back. And 50 years later, you're gonna, they're going to have pro- potential problems with osteoporosis. It's a really enormous problem. I agree with everything except I personally used Cytoderm back in the day, and uh, I found it to be an excellent, excellent I, uh, adjunct. I, yeah, I, you know, I'm, I'm not really a drug guy, and just what little I read, you know, guys that use the cortisol blocker, Cytoderm, and they played around with, I think, RU486. Like, it caused a lot of joint pain. Maybe it was a dosage issue. I just remember it in the early stages. They couldn't, oh, folks couldn't I, really I, make it work. Well, let me be clear. I didn't say it wasn't without, <laughs> without sure. cost. Fair but enough. But it did, yeah. in fact, it, it did, in fact, aid in the... Uh, preparation for bodybuilding shows, I really do. Yeah, absolutely. That. I think um, it also absolutely. played a major role in a death on Dress Munzer, so there is that. Yeah, there you go. Um, <laughs> so, yeah, so you've, you've got all of that sort of going on that, that ties into all of this, um, which sort of gets, you know, and sort of into the next issue is one of the big reasons to start a, con- a diet earlier rather than later is it lets you start more slowly. Right now, there are times for crash diets. I wrote an entire book about one for short periods of time. They're very effective, but the key there is short periods of time because they do tend to cause relatively more problems, but the diet's over more quickly. It's kind of, you know, you can either diet for a while for short for long period or diet easily for long periods or diet really hard for very short periods. What people end up having happen when they're behind is they try to diet really hard for really long periods, and that's when shit goes wrong. Um, there's also that reality issue, right? So let's say you start your diet, and you're like, going to go just just jump the hell in, bump your cardio to an hour a day, you cut your calories by four or five, I and mean, you just create a big-ass deficit. Fat starts to come off, but, you know, calories are lowered, doing a lot of activity, and then your body starts to adapt. Right, metabolism starts to slow down, energy expenditure starts to go down. Now what? Right? You're now in a position where your body has started the adaptation process. Where do you go from here? How much lower can you take your calories? How much higher can you take your aerobics? Like there is a limit realistically, physiologically, mentally, to how much you can put together. Not to mention that that combination of really low calories and really large amounts of activity right off the bat, like 
as much as I hate the phrase shock the system, it literally does shock the system, but not in a good way. Like you see this when you combine those two things, you jack cortisol really, really up high. That stresses the hypothalamus. Actually, in, in women, I'm working on this book on women's physiology, and their, their systems are way more sensitive. In only a week of dieting plus three hard days of exercise, a woman can start to disrupt her own menstrual function. Okay, let me repeat that. In only seven days of hard dieting and exercise, a woman can start to see disruptions in her menstrual cycle and in her normal hormone levels. Seven days. And what do women do? Time to diet. 1,200 calories, an hour of hard aerobics every single day, and they fuck their systems immediately, like seriously immediately, and the problems just get worse, right? Then when they stall, what do they do? 1,000 calories, 900 calories, another hour of cardio day? Like where, where do you go when you're already starting from a hard dieting phase? So starting earlier gives you the, the ability to start much more moderately to bring in your 20 or 30 minutes of aerobics a few times a week to cut your calories. Fat loss starts coming off, and as it starts to flow, you know, I think if you look at a lot of successful contest dieters who do that, every week they're just making these little gradual changes. Cut their food a little bit, bump their cardio by five or ten minutes a day. You know, and a lot of this experience, but they found that by making these very gradual changes, they sort of keep up with their body's adaptation um, without ever – so that, yeah, you know, by the end of it, you're going to be on less food and you're going to be on a fair amount of activity unless you're, you know, a big boy. If you're a big 240-pound dude, you will still be eating a lot relatively. If you're a 130-pound female, you're not going to have much food to play around with. Like, that's just – that's reality. It sucks, but that's the reality of being a small female. Even a 160-pound lightweight male is not well, going to – let me ask you a question. I have, I have thousands yeah. of questions I could yeah. and I desperately want to ask you, but I'm, I'm trying so hard to stay on topic. Yeah. But th this seems like a fair place for this question. Um, mm -hmm. Just in a general sense, not necessarily relevant to exactly what you've been saying, but just in a general sense, which to you is more valuable, uh, energy expenditure or energy deprivation? Which is the more valuable tool or the the first tool one should apply to a diet? Uh, it, more activity it, or less food? It really sort of depends, you know, and a lot of it depends on where you're starting from. You know, someone who's doing very little activity may find it easier to just add in 20 or 30 minutes of cardio. You know, it doesn't even have to be that, that hard or that much off the bat, burn a few hundred calories and keep their food the same. People that are already doing a lot of activity, for whatever reason, who can't add much more there, may be better off reducing their food intake. Sometimes kind of a mixture is best. Like I actually remember Dan Duchesne, who we mentioned, you know, he found very empirically that women seem to do better with half and half cardio and calorie restriction, and men were did better with less cardio and, and more uh, more calorie restrictions, like 15% and 5 for men and 10 and 10 for women. And I think there's some women-specific issues as far as blood flow and, and fat mobilization and stuff. But it's not that one is necessarily better or worse. It's kind of what's appropriate. You know, and this is yet another reason, like, again, small dieters get into this worse than, than larger dieters. Once you reach a certain point with your food, even if you're little, absolute amount of food is just very small, right? 1,400 calories of food is not a lot no matter how you cut it. Once you're at that point, you, can, you can't really cut your calories that much further. You just really, without 
you just lose it. You go nuts. You know, it's not anything, you don't have anything to eat. In that position, you may be, you, you know, adding, <clears throat> increasing your activity is probably the only option. Again, if you're a big boy at 200 pounds who's still eating a lot of food, because from the volume standpoint, you can probably cut your food intake a lot more easily because cardio sucks. So it's really not that one is, you know, uh, better than the other. It's more of a, a sort of what the situation is. I will say that for whatever reason, women's bodies seem to respond a little bit more poorly to big calorie cuts than, than activity. Like for some reason, activity doesn't seem to hurt the immune or uh, the menstrual cycle function quite as badly, at least in the short-term studies they've done. Um, but probably a hormonal point, response, I would suspect. Uh, yeah, it's some, yeah there's, there's some vague difference between the two that hasn't really, nobody's really identified what it is. It's just an observational thing. Um, but, again, it's a, you know, it's a matter of degrees. Women have a real, well, dieters have a real tendency to just jump a little too hard into it, and then what happens? Their diet stalls. And then what do they do? They try to diet even harder, and then their diet, and just it becomes this really bad cycle. Um, there's also, and a lot of it, you get a lot of water, uh, water retention that tends to stall or make the diet look like it's stalling. Um, there's actually a certain personality profile that when I'm polite, I call tightly wound, and when I'm being impolite, I just call fucking nuts. Um, that are just like you can see them online. They they type whenever they have problems. They're like. Why am I not losing weight? And there's lots of exclamation points. Like, you can hear the tension in their typing. You can hear the stress. And there's a certain personality type that is so psychologically stressed to begin with, they are already re- releasing more cortisol. Like, just off the bat, before they – then they jump into cut their calories by a 1,000 a day, jump into an hour of hard cardio, and cortisol just skyrockets. The system shuts down. They hold 10 pounds of water. And what do you tell them? You've done this. You need to eat more, do less activity, and chill. I, I recommend getting drunk and laid. I think that's usually the best uh, the best advice for these women. And what do they? That can't possibly work. What you're doing? And I affectionately work. refer to that same crowd as the Cushing's uh, <laughs> syndrome crowd because yeah, that's I essentially mean, what they've given themselves. Exactly. And and, and and women had this weird issue that I, I just came across that, you know, normally, like you said, there's a feedback loop. Normally, body releases cortisol. That goes to the hypothalamus tells the, the, to stop releasing corticotropin, releasing hormone, women's bodies, their feedback loop doesn't work as well. They can just continue to jack out more cortisol, and, and eventually their system can actually pretty much just shut itself down, like they can really get themselves into trouble with that kind of thing. So, so that's, that would be kind of like point four, is start the diet early so that you can start with a much more gradual diet approach. Like, yes, again, fine. If you're going to do a month diet and just get it the hell over with, and a lot of power athletes seem to feel that they, their, their strength takes a hit less, cool. Diet your balls off for four weeks. Take off five to eight pounds and then bring your calories back up. Like, get back to me. And I think they do it. They make better strength gains by rather than dieting half-assedly for eight weeks and not being able to train effectively, they just take weight off for four and then they can get back to eating for the next four. And I think that tends to be more Or they just have a very marginal attention span, which is, uh, again, one of the less complimentary things I do do believe in. it's true. No, there's a site... There's a psychology to it. There's a reason that strength power athletes like a lot of variety, and it's because they have a little bit of ADD, and their neurochemistry is very – you're not wrong. They don't have the attention span for long.
strong diet. Bodybuilders come from more of the obsessive compulsive disorder end of things. They like being obsessive. They like being meticulous. They like being psychotic for 16 weeks. It's what Which they enjoy. completely They're comedic because I am a strength athlete with the ideology and mentality of a bodybuilder. Yeah, 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 and that's and they do exist, but as a generality, yeah, yeah. A generality, strength power guys are very ADD, very uh, they need constant variety, and bodybuilders just they just they love eating the same thing for months at a time. So rice, fish and rice cakes. Um, so that kind of brings me to the the training itself. You know, we talked a little bit about this in general, but I think one of the really the more damaging things that, that came out of uh, sort of drug-driven contest prep, right, is we've got this issue of muscle loss. Duchesne wrote about it extensively. You know, it's it's one of those things that happens, that, that especially as you get leaner. And there's an interesting thing that the more fat you have, the less lean body mass you tend to lose, the less muscle mass you tend to lose on a diet, and vice versa. The leaner you get, the more muscle you tend to use. Fat or tend to lose fat is becoming more difficult to mobilize. The body needs an energy source. Boom, it's fixed muscle. That's the next closest thing. And muscle loss on a diet is a real problem, or it can be a real problem, but especially if you diet in very certain stupid ways. And one of the things that came out of, you know, drug prep was, ah, when we contest diets, number one, we're going to increase our training volume and frequency. Now, this is completely ass-backwards. How can you do more training when you have poorer recovery? It never made any sense. However, with enough steroids, you can get away with anything. Um, number two, there was the idea of burning in the cuts and etching in the definition, or I might have those backwards. It was the idea of moving to high repetitions and short rest periods, you know, for, for, for cutting. There's cutting training and there's bulking training. And again, when you've got steroids to offset the muscle loss, you can do that. It has some nice benefits. Burns more calories, depletes muscle glycogen, that helps fat burning etc., etc. When naturals do that, the muscle goes away. The primary stimulus for muscle growth and also for muscle maintenance is high tension, tension in the muscle. Duchesne talks about this. The early studies by Goldstein, you know, that that's the key thing is high tension loads. When you remove the tension from a muscle, when you're not lifting the same weight, there's no reason for the body to keep it. Again, if you have steroids, it doesn't matter. If you don't have steroids, that's the singular worst thing you can do in the weight room is to reduce the weight that you're lifting. Now, I'd actually be – As a matter of fact, Dan, Dan Duchesne actually counseled me personally <laughs> on that very subject, and he recommended exactly the opposite. He's training lighter in the off-season proportionally, and actually yeah. raising one's training loads as the diet progresses. Which actually makes, especially if you're using anabolics, it's actually interesting. I, I came across an old audio interview with his and, and recently reread the Muscle Media 2000 thing. And an issue that, that drug users always wondered about was, you know, how do we keep the gains when we come off? Well, the, the new solution is simple. Don't ever come off. But at the time, guys didn't stay on your round. And what he actually, he recommended exactly that. He said, look, the drugs are going to make you bigger and stronger no matter what. Train in a higher repetition range, relatively speaking. Rather than doing 315 for five in the off season and only being able to do 275 when you come off or during your diet, do 315 by 15 in the off season or whatever, and then you can do 315 by five on your diet which makes way more sense. So, again, he figured out the hard way what, what absolutely works. When you're eating enough, all you need is progression. As long as you get the volume in, 
training volume, you'll you'll get the gains. You will gain muscle. When you're going into a diet, you have to maintain that that high quality tension load, even if that means, in my mind, reducing your total volume. Right? I usually recommend people. I would rather them see them drop the number of sets than drop the amount of weight. And we know from some of the other some of the strength. It's usually strength and aerobic work, but, you know, you can cut your volume and frequency pretty hard as long as you maintain intensity. That's the key. So let's say somebody was doing four sets of eight at 315 in the squat in the off-season. Time to diet. I would rather see them do two sets of eight at 315 than four sets of eight at 275 because the two sets of eight at 315 will maintain their strength, will maintain their muscle mass significantly better. One good coach buddy of mine, he and I have an ongoing argument. He doesn't believe in reducing volume on a diet, but he's coaching people hands-on, and I'm not. And that's a big difference. Mistake a lot of dieters make, uh, both men and women, whatever the workout says to do, by God, they're going to do it. If it says four sets of eight, they're going to get four sets of eight if it kills them. And on a diet, that's not always realistic. You've got those shitty workout days where you really should stop at two sets of eight. But without a coach there to go, yeah, I think you're done, you're not going to do that. So I tend to err on the side of conservatism to a great degree. I would rather start people with a reduction in volume and make sure they get the quality. It's just, it's kind of, it's damage control against the, the dumb stuff I know people will do in the real world. You know, if I'm working with somebody face-to-face, I'll make that call on that day, but people on their own, I sort of have to proactively uh, guess what they're going to do to screw themselves up. So, but yeah, so so in terms of weight training, keep the, keep the weight the same to the best of your ability. Reduce volume if you have to. You know, if you want to do that high rep, short rest period interval type stuff, do that in addition. Like cut your heavy weight work back. Cut from four heavy sets to two heavy sets. Do two sets of 15 to 20 afterward to get those nice metabolic effects or do that circuit after the workout. And I think that works phenomenally better than you, you just can't replace all of the heavy work with light work as a natural. The muscles fall off. Per- personally, and, and again, I don't want to interject too much personally because mm-hmm. this is all you, but yeah. personally from my, my attitude and my experience leads me to believe that that uh, aerobics with weight training, uh, just, you know, high reps, low rest, uh, you know, keep the pace kind of training, um, that just pacifies neurosis. That really doesn't have shit to do with your physiology. I think it's absolute nonsense. Um, I'm not much of a cardio guy, but I'd rather see those people stop doing that and go get on a bike. But that's me. I tend to be a bit mean. I tend to be a bit mean-hearted about that sort of thing. Yeah, and I don't, I don't disagree. You know, and that, that sort of brings, I guess, sort of the, the second thing, which is the whole cardio issue, which is, you know, it's, it's funny how for decades bodybuilders use low-intensity cardio as part of their diet prep. And it may not have had a huge effect, but it was a way to burn more calories without having to cut their food. And then suddenly that is the whole interval thing broke. It went from low-intensity cardio is good to low-intensity cardio is ineffective to low-intensity cardio makes you fat. And it's like, really? <laughs> what is this? Seriously. Oh, God, just that shit aggravates me to no end, but it's the nature of the fitness industry. Um, yes, correct. Three decades that has been shown to be practically ineffective. Yeah, it makes you fat. Okay, if you say so. Um but that's sort of another issue. You know, we've got all these lovely studies and the interval training, and, and make no mistake, I'm, I'm not anti-interval training. I wrote a book about stubborn fat that used an interval training protocol that has its place. But again, you've got dieters on lower calories. Recovery is down. There's only so much high-intensity work you can do, right? There just is. You can only throw in so much work before you blow up, you know? 
athletes, endurance athletes might do intervals twice a week, and they're eating enough, and they're not trying to squat heavy twice a week. Like, you, you just can't keep tacking on more and more and more and more shit. Um, and there's a real limit to that recovery thing. There's also the fact, you know, when people are dieting, they usually do some sort of conditioning work daily, you know, to burn some calories or whatever. The old school bodybuilders, you just go and you did your hour on the treadmill or whatever it was, and it sucked and it was boring, but you just did it. And then you got, as soon as low-intensity aerobics became bad, you had people trying to do interval training six days a week. It's like, are you out of your goddamn mind? But that was that extreme that it reached, and it's just like you just can't do that on a diet with heavy weight, like, and then add metabolic weight training and circuits and complexes and, like, there's only so much the body can handle before it really does start to get overstressed. Um, so that that's another one of those places that I tend to hear on the side of conservatism. It's like, yeah, you might fit in one or two interval sessions, but realistically most of what you're going to be doing, if you're doing anything, is probably low intensity. At the same time, some of the overreaction is because people went nuts, right? People went from, well, if an hour of cardio is good, well, shit, three hours of cardio must be better. Like, oh, no, you're not an endurance athlete. You know, you can go to any gym, and it's women more than men. Women love to do endless aerobic activity. I've watched women do an hour of hard stairmaster before an aerobics class. Like, it's just like, look, you're, you written again, women's body is way more sensitive. Cortisol goes up. Their system doesn't uh, have the, the, the feedback loop working as well. They're trying to cut their calories hard, and, and the system just cycles down into destroy. Um, but that's one of those places. Again, start early, keep your weight training heavy, maybe reduce the heavy volume, add a little bit of metabolic work if you must. Bring in the cardio gradually because, again, at the end of the diet, where are you going to go? When you're doing an hour, six days a week, seven days a week, how much more can you add? If you've gotten to that point and have some room to keep progressing, um, I knew one guy, very extreme. He started with two minutes of aerobics a day. I kid you not. He would do get on the bike for two minutes, and he added like two minutes a week. But he started his diet very, very early. There's also an issue. I had a, a, an old training partner of mine, really good guy, natural bodybuilder, phenomenal, and he was of the cardio burns muscle camp, which, well, yeah, if you do it wrong, and I was like, okay, well, how did you use to approach your contest dieting? And he would go from nothing but weight training and eating big to running an hour. Well, yeah, <laughs> that will definitely make your muscle fall off, but it had less to do with cardio and more to it being a very dumb approach. Fat burning pathways get lazy in the off-season. They, they just aren't, if you're not doing some aerobics in the off-season, let's face it, most of us don't, it, it sucks. Um those fat-burning pathways kind of lose their ability to, to do what they need to do, and that, that takes time to rebuild. So wow. you do a couple I'm of weeks. I'm so glad you said that because that yeah. is something that I simply don't hear people say enough is disuse leads to enzymatic downregulation, and sure. anytime you activate a pathway, there is a fairly significant, sometimes gigantic, lag in upregulation. You just can't turn a factory yeah. on and start pumping out product. It takes Correct. weeks and weeks of, of preparation and training and to get you know, to, to start making widgets or whatever your factory does. I'm really glad you said that yeah. out loud because I preach this stuff and I feel like I'm a sing singular voice and it's it's wonderful to hear someone else approach it in a slightly different way. It's wonderful, well, refreshing. Well, some Something I've actually kind of gotten back to, which is, you know, back in the day, there was what bodybuilders used to call hardening phase. And it was kind of this weird intermediate phase between 
bulking and cutting where, you know, they would quote unquote clean up their diet and start to, to adjust their training a little bit and they would talk about leaning out and hardening up a little bit. And I actually, you know, honestly it was probably they were it was time for them to change which drugs they were using from whatever to lower androgens to release water weight. But I think there's actually a lot of, of uh of benefit to that. To take a couple of weeks, you know, and again this this gets back to making sure you have time to, to actually finish your diet. But those first couple of weeks is maybe just bring calories to maintenance. Right? You've been eating big, gaining Big boy, you gain your muscle mass or whatever as a girl. Before you really jump headfirst into dieting, let's bring your calories just to maintenance. Let's bring in a little bit of aerobic activity, you know, 20 or 30 minutes a few times a week. doesn't have to be much, fairly low intensity. You can start to adjust your weight training. You know, if people who've never – if you haven't been doing high reps and short rest period work, man, it sucks the first few workouts. Um, people learn that the hard way, and I, in hindsight, my ultimate diet, too, started with those big depletion workouts like body opus, and man, if you're not, if you're coming out of heavy sets of five to eight, it's just, it's, it's, it's ruining. <laughs> it's just the worst, it's just the worst thing you will ever do right off the bat, especially with low carbs. So it's like, you know, if you're going to moderate your carb intake, bring them down for a couple weeks. Like, don't, don't jump straight from high carbs to low carb or whatever. Bring them down to that 40% or one and a half grams a pound or whatever. Bring a little bit of cardio. Take those couple of weeks, you know, to give to give those pathways time to start rebuilding and to bring in some of that work you haven't been doing without it being combined with the deficit that double stresses the system. So I think going back to that, at least a two-week period, you know, four weeks might be better, but here's the thing. People aren't going to do it. Um, people are impatient, and we both know they're not going to. So there's kind of a happy medium to be had. But I think even a couple weeks of, of that hardening type or, or the pre-diet, you might call it, is not a bad thing um, to sort of get your body back into dieting mode. There's a weird thing, you've probably seen it, where it's like, you know how like after you're done with a diet, you frequently lean out for the next two weeks? Well, there's a thing I've seen where when people start a diet, I swear to God, it looks like they get fatter. So it's just like the first two weeks, there's this weird, my buddy calls it the skinny fat phase. He thinks it's just a little bit of depletion of muscle glycogen, but you're still, like, you look fatter for a couple weeks. Like, there's this residual fat overflow from the previous gaining phase, and it's really weird, and that's a good thing. That'll kind of go away. You can address that in that, that pre-diet phase, um, you know. So, and then I guess the fourth, the, the, probably the last thing, and this is really more for the women than men. Um, it's interesting that men are frequently kind of biologically and sociologically drawn to a lot of the right things when they diet, which is to, what do you guys do when they want to get in shape? Lift weights and eat meat. Like, that's what dudes just do. You don't see guys going and, and being endless cardio bunnies. Um, and I don't use, I'm sorry, I don't mean to use that term, you know. That's not meant to be an attack on women. That's just the term. <laughs> women. It's, it's the activity, not the, not the demographic yeah. that does it. <laughs> yeah, thank you. Women, when they want to diet, they do endless cardio and eat nothing but carbs. And there's you can find this all the time online. Women are like, I did three hours of cardio a day and ate all the carbs. And then as soon as they bring in heavy weight training and jack up and raise their protein and moderate their carbs, it's magic. Like, it, it's not – it doesn't do it in men, but in women, it's just magic. Um, that combination of factors, finally eating enough dietary protein and doing proper weight training, not just – fiddling around with light reps and 20 repetitions and light weights and just pissing around in the weight room. Like when you finally get women to go heavy enough to do 
to lift, you know, to work with challenging weights. And even if it's 12 to 15 reps, I don't care. If you can do 30 reps with it, it's too light. I see women leg pressing with a 10-pound plate on each side. It's like, honey, you lift more than that when you walk upstairs, for God's sake. Put some damn weight on the machine. I guarantee you can outlift some of the dudes in here. Um, but as soon as you get women to do that, and magic happens. So it's like on top of the heavier weight training, it's a single dietary factor that I wish every person would burn into their brain, and more so women than men. It's eat enough dietary protein. Nothing is more protein sparing. Not carbs, not fats, not ketosis. I don't give a shit what else you, well, maybe drugs, but nothing is more protein sparing than eating enough protein. And that's actually one where place you, I think. Where do you put that number? I'm, I'm very familiar yeah. with your protein book, but we're yeah. just. For the listeners at home, where where do you put that number? Well, it's, very it's funny because this is a place, you know, Duchesne was brilliant, but there were some places, you know, he, he was originally a steroid guy, and, and every once in a while some of his nutrition stuff I think fell short. And he really believed in sticking with, you know, a gram a pound of protein or a gram per pound of lean body mass. And actually for naturals, that's too low. Um same buddy of mine, this guy named Eric Helms, did a, a really phenomenal review paper looking at all the studies on dietary protein intake, lean body mass loss in lean athletes, right? It's, if you're dealing with people with 50% body fat, doesn't matter. One and a half grams per kilo is plenty. They don't, they're not losing any muscle, and even if they do, who cares? But when you're dealing with lean athletes, a lean male may be losing one pound of muscle per three pounds of fat. Like, it's really a significant amount, and the less you can lose of that, the better. And, you know, uh, he, he found that, you know, it, it could be 2.4 grams per kilo or, high, you know, up to three grams per kilo for lean athletes to, to spare muscle mass loss, and that's right about a gram and a half per pound of lean body mass. Like, that's a lot higher than, than, um, than Duchesne had recommended, and I'm almost tempted to say that a gram per pound might actually work if you're on steroids. Like, I know the general belief is that you need more protein on steroids. No, you need significantly less. Yeah, because the steroids are so much to improve nitrogen retention that I think that gram per pound that this is one of those places where I think naturals actually need more because of their – because, again, testosterone is going down, cortisol is going up, their body is just hemorrhaging protein for fuel and – any protein that's being burned for energy is protein that cannot go to use for skeletal muscle. So you got – I'm almost – the problem with going to a gram and a half, that's for men. Women can get away with, like, 1.2 grams per pound. They, women don't lose as much – use as much protein for fuel as men. It's hormonal. Um, estrogen is very protective against protein loss. So women can use a little bit less. The problem is that when your calories get low, it doesn't leave a lot of else to eat. Like frequently carbohydrates will end up being lower than you need them to be to support training. And, you know, something has to give. Um, dietary fat can't go too low. you got to get such fatty acids. But like protein intake needs to be sufficiently high. And for men, you know, again, we're talking 12% and lower, 1.4 to 1.5 grams per pound of lean body mass. Um, and for women, maybe 1.2 to 1.3. That sort of comes into a couple of other issues, and I know we need to, to wrap up, which is most people diet for too long without a break. I know I said start your diet early, but this is another reason to do so. I hear people on forums dieting for six months straight. Dude, are you out of your mind? Like, I realize if you're carrying a lot of fat, that's what it takes, but physically, physiologically, psychologically, no one can handle that. You crack. And, you know, again, Dan Duchesne ahead of the curve, he, rec- he had, you know, the, the carb up and body opus. He recommended taking two weeks of maintenance calories between diet phases. 
I kind of formalize those in my book on flexible dieting, but, you know, I would be remiss not to, to mention that I certainly wasn't the first one to do it. But one of the ways to offset the general reduction in carbohydrates and potential to uh, lose training quality is to do those high-carbohydrate refeeds. Um, that also has the advantage of bringing calories to maintenance. That helps offset some of the hormonal problems. There's a lot of advantages for that, and actually women probably even more so than men because it helps to offset some of the menstrual cycle issues. Um, but, you know, including those refeeds within the context of the, the actual active dieting phases, and that may be a 24-hour, one-to-two-day high-carb period, loads carbs into muscle. People actually frequently lean out a little bit when they do that. Training can be maintained, you know, et cetera, et cetera. But I also have long recommended that full diet break. It's kind of like the pre-diet phase repeated. So depending on how lean you are, and again, this, this lean population we're talking about, maybe every six to eight weeks, you may need to take two weeks off your diet. And I realize that that's insane to people. How can I get leaner by not dieting? How can my diet work more effectively? But it does work. It gives your body time to kind of stabilize, at least improve hormone levels. Like you're never going to fix them without regaining all the fat again. But it, you're always better off at maintenance calories than not at maintenance calories. You can bump your training volume up to regain any muscle mass you've lost. It also just I don't know, it gives you like a light at the end of the tunnel. The analogy I've used recently is like, you know, it's like when you're driving long distance, driving across country. Holy shit, this is a 48-hour drive. Nobody can deal with that conceptually. But if you break it into, okay, I'm going to stop for gas every three hours. Well, anybody can drive for three hours. Anybody, you know, and then you drive for three more hours. Anyone can diet for six to eight weeks when you know you've got that, that light at the end of the tunnel. That's a lot less overwhelming psychologically than, oh, my God six months of this shit, so it has enormous physiological, psychological, physical benefits. I mean, anyone that's contest dieted and gotten really lean, like, you're, it just, it just beats you up. Physically, mentally, you don't recover well, you end up overtrained at the end of it. Giving, having those two weeks kind of to give your body and mind a break really goes a long way. Um, it also starts to teach you those habits to to maintain some of that fat loss in the long term. So, so that along with the general dietary stuff, you know, eating enough protein kind of leads into that. Keeping protein high enough means carbs are probably lower than where you want them to be. Insert the refeeds, you get to bump carbs up, refill muscle glycogen, maintain training quality. Training quality is the key to not losing muscle mass along with protein. Have a couple week break every six to eight weeks. And as you get leaner, you actually have to break the diet more frequently, which goes completely against logic. Well, as I get leaner, don't I have to diet harder? Well, yes, when you're dieting, but you actually, your body is fighting back harder, and you may have to trick it a little bit more frequently than less frequently, which goes very much against dieting logic. People assume, not, not to go down an entirely new rabbit hole, but just very yeah. quickly and briefly, do you put much stock in the... Uh, the, the resensitization of GLUT4 and all that stuff, kind of the insulin sensitivity improvements of short-term carbohydrate feeds. Do you, do you really think that's real? Outside of you psychologically, I mean, do you physiologically think that has much benefit? Um, I'm not entirely sure what you're asking me. Are you saying is, is the claim that GLUT4 sensitivity goes up or down? Well, I've heard ridiculous claims on all corners, but do you really think that short-term carbohydrate feeding has much impact on insulin sensitivity or the in, the improvement of fat metabolism or any of the many things that has been spouted by the 
Yeah, I don't think I don't think now acutely. It's like it's like you mentioned. You don't really see those enormous changes acutely. You know, a lot of this is long-term gene expression, constant stimuli kind of stuff. And I think a lot of people get get a little bit too focused on wood You know, training keeps insulin sensitivity high anyway. And I typically recommend doing those carb loads around training just to take advantage of of that. You know, contraction mediated. Glute four, glute one, yada yada yada. So, um, I think what you might be, you know, I think I suspect you're asking more about sort of leptin kinetics and metabolic rate upregulation and that sort of stuff, which is usually where the claims come from. And that stuff um, takes weeks, if I'm not mistaken, weeks and weeks to really it, impact. It, yeah, it, you know, I think I was one of the first ones to really sort of push that in my, you know, and I was very optimistic that very short refeed periods would have big effects. And in hindsight, flat out, I was wrong. Like I just won't even uh, debate the issue. Um, certainly in a couple of days, you can you can reverse, believe it or not, some of the effects. This actually comes out of some of the women's research that with even two days of refeeding, a lot of those after five days of hard dieting, some of those menstrual cycle hormonal disruptions do reverse themselves. So there, it, it actually, you know, is it going to just get your metabolism firing enormously or reverse the metabolic adaptations to dieting? No, no, absolutely not. It's more of a gives you a little bit of a boost. I think it's it's as much as anything it's a training quality thing. It certainly doesn't hurt to turn off diet-induced catabolism, you know, raising insulin will reduce cortisol, all that sort of good stuff. I don't think the metabolic effects are as lovely or as enormous as we want them to be. Um, certainly that two-week period, you're going to see some nice effect. It takes, you know, a few days for T3 production to go back up. T3 has some genomic effects that take a little while to kick in, which is why I recommend that two-week period. You know, it's a good – it's a solid – seven to ten days to get that maximal gene expression off off the increased T3 output. So, um, so yeah, the short ones really are more of a Band-Aid solution, but the, the two-week uh, diet breaks in between the active dieting certainly, I think, have an effect. And, and even Dan said, you know, measure your body temperature. That was the goal. Yeah. Uh, morning weight, waking temperature is actually a pretty good indicator of metabolic rate slowdown, and that would actually be a, probably a more accurate way to track some of this stuff to see if it's having – really a significant difference, um, but it is, you know, it is measurable. Speaking of how drugs kind of antithetically mirror the uh, the natural world, usually what drug deal users are doing is to fix something that goes wrong in the natural physiology. Uh, oh, yeah. Dan Duchesne's, Dan Duchesne's clenbuterol protocol illustrates what you're saying perfectly. Yes. Everything, everything he was looking for and measuring was all of the down regulations in a natural physiology. It's a yeah. very, just, yep, just very perfect up. dovetail right there. Clen, clen plus thyroid is a fantastic combination um, for exactly that reason because they're they're very synergistic and I mean that's that's a fat burning combo from hell. So yeah, so that's that that's where sort of I think that's where I would almost finish it up is you know start early enough which this, it almost comes back full circle here, you know, start early enough, be realistic about how long it's going to take, which means determining how early you need to start, um, gives you the ability to not have to jump your training up or cut your calories so hard that you have somewhere to go later in the diet. Uh, training, make sure maintain that heavyweight training stimulus, even if it's the, exp- you know, that, that doesn't get compromised. Whatever else you want to do, you don't get to completely remove the tension stimulus. Cardio, you know, you can do a mix. Low intensity is 
Decades proven, don't go too hard. You just don't have the recovery. A couple interval sessions and bring that up gradually. Consider starting the diet with that pre-diet phase. Give everything time to kind of get back online, you know, get cranking as far as, you know, the, the, the better your fat-burning pathways are, the less your body needs to use muscle for fuel. That, that's kind of the, the key to it. If you jump into too much hard cardio without that adaptation happening, your body has to get the energy from somewhere. If it can't pull it out of fat, it's coming from somewhere you don't want. Lyle, let me ask you one last question. And this, this mm-hmm. is, I, I have vested interest in this question. Um, yeah. It's actually an argument I had with a good friend of mine, and I know he's going to be listening. Um, okay. Speaking of, you, you said cardio enough times there that it made the little flag go yeah. up in my mind. Uh, considering the, uh, the thermic effect of exercise and all of, all mm-hmm. of the various things and ho- hormonal actions, do you think there's – any uh, major difference in breaking up cardio sessions? Say you're determined to do 60 minutes a day. Yeah. Would three 20-minute sessions be the same or different metabolically than one 60-minute session? It actually looks like I'm facing some of the hormonal stuff that the, the split sessions might actually be more effective. Um, I seem to recall that, that one of them, well, one, they did like an hour, rest an hour, another hour, and they actually saw better fat mobilization, better fat oxidation the second hour than when they split them or did them at all at the same time. Um, there's a really interesting hormonal pathway. I wrote about it in this, excuse me, this weird little booklet at the first of the year called Atrial Natriuretic Peptide, which is actually this new fat-burning pathway they've, well, recently, 2000, that they identified. Um, it's really interesting. It goes around the normal insulin catecholamine, like the normal fat mobilization pathways, and I think it has some really interesting potential. Oddly, it's released by the heart, but mobilizes fat. But what's interesting is that a second session of cardio, after a first session, you actually get a larger release of this atrial natriuretic peptide, which has these really potent fat mobilization effects. So I actually do think that there is some logic to that, that, that splitting it might be, you know, a superior approach. It's interesting that bodybuilders, you know, years ago, they frequently, they added that second evening session. It was probably more of a, you know, just to keep burning more calories towards the end of the diet type of thing, but you do have to wonder if they kind of stumbled onto something that, that might have been effective. Um, some of it may be, you know, you use a little bit of muscle glycogen, carbohydrate stored in the muscle in the first session, so you're going to be using a little bit more fat for fuel at the second session anyway. Um, but, yeah, there does probably seem to be some rationale for it. I think that has to be balanced against uh, the real world. And being able to do that, um, if you don't live in the gym, but, you know, if, if a bodybuilder wants to do, you know, rather than an hour all at once, do 30 minutes in the morning to sort of start that process, and then they're going to lift later in the evening and then follow that up with 30 minutes more, that might actually be more effective. I'm, I'm really uh, really pleased to hear you weigh in on the subject. I, yeah. I had a very similar rationale, but you're you're a far greater expert on the subject than I, and uh, it's, it's, okay. it's nice to hear what you had to say. That's that's wonderful. Wow. So so there we are. I mean, that is a whirlwind yet concise and fairly easy to follow uh, uh, just dissertation on on rational dieting. Yeah. Um, you know, have rational expectations both on how long it's going to take and how hard it's going to be. Yeah. Uh, probably add a few percent, <laughs> somewhere between a few and a bunch of percents to your already rational yeah. expectations. Yeah. And, uh, and then just very basic principles from there it, that's um that that really is is amazing stuff and it, it's exactly uh a, a a more eloquent version of pretty much everything i've said in the past so it's it's, oh, it's just uh it, it's wonderful to hear that um 
As I said, Lyle, Mr. McDonald, I, I'm a huge fan, and I'm amazed that you would take the time to speak oh, no. with me and my listeners, and uh, it, it, it paid off. Um, that that is good. just pure gold. Anyone who has any interest in manipulating their body fat could pretty much take all of that to the gym today and start making progress tomorrow, which is exactly what this show is about. Yeah. So uh, I, I'm, just, I'm just blown away. I'm, I'm bowled over. It was everything I thought it might be and a little bit more. Fantastic. I, I really am, in, am impressed, and uh, I continue to be impressed. And I want to say that when your book on uh, you know, women's issues and, and women's physiology is complete, I would love for you to come on and talk about it. And uh, absolutely, I, I, re- I really would. And I, I don't say this lightly. Um, it, it's a subject that doesn't get near enough attention, and I think you're just the person to tackle it and, 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 and bring it to light. I think we can leave it there. Anything you'd like to say um, in the, both the description of this video and probably the intro, I will uh, talk about who you are and where you are and how people can and should find you. But is there anything right. you'd like to say? Uh, no, I think that covers it. I'm glad. I was thrilled to, to be on this. You know, I love talking shop, and, uh, yeah, I, you know, I would love to see more people approach this rationally. You know, I, see, so I, I have to wonder how many – of the dieting failures that get reported. I mean, yes, dieting is hard. Yes, the body fights back. But intelligent dieting always wins out over non-intelligent dieting. It doesn't guarantee anything, but it sure as hell makes it more likely that people will get their goals and stay there. So I would love to see more people diet rationally than do idiotic stuff going forward. So, Well, on that, I mean, you, you can't do anything more than give people the information they yeah. need. You can't make them do it. But, you are uh, correct. <laughs> so I, I am, as I said, well, just one last time, just a little bit mushy almost, but uh, just thank you for being here and thank you for being on the show. And and lastly and most importantly, thank you for being you. Thank you for being one of the good guys. There's not enough people like you out there, and the few that are aren't vocal enough. Just thank yeah. you, sir. Okay. Fantastic. Thank you. I'll, do, I'll keep doing what I do. Please do, and we will continue to take notice. And, uh, okay. and when people don't, I will point at it and make sure that they do. <laughs> Very good. So, so there we are, Fat Loss with Lyle McDonald. Uh, until next time, folks, thanks for tuning in.